Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this morning just once again thanking you for the privilege of being in your house. Thanking you for the opportunity, Lord, this morning to worship you. Father, we ask that you just move in our midst. Father, we pray that you'll speak to each one of us as we open up your word. And Father, I pray, Lord Jesus, that each and every one of us leave changed as a result of the reading and study from your word. Father, we love you and we thank you. First, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, kids can teach you a lot about life, can't they? A five-year-old was visiting her grandfather one day, and the little girl was up in her grandfather's lap. And they were in the den of the house, and the, the little girl looks at her grandfather, and she says, Grandfather, did God make you? And the grandfather said, Yes, God made me. And she, she thought for a second, and then she looked at her grandfather again and said, Grandfather, did God make me? And the grandfather said, Yes, God made you. And the little girl climbed down out of her grandfather's lap. And there was a mirror in the den, and she went and she looked in that mirror, and she studied, and she came back over, and she climbed up into her grandfather's lap again, and she goes, Grandfather, you know, God is doing a lot better work these days, isn't he? Oh, what little children can teach us. You know, this morning we're continuing our sermon series, Miracles and Parables. This morning, we're looking at the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Did you know that of all of Jesus' miracles, this is the only miracle outside of the resurrection story in which it is mentioned in each one of the Gospels. So this morning, we will not only refer to the book of Matthew, but we're also going to look at the verses that are in the other Gospels as well. Even though this is the same story, each of the Gospel writers emphasize a few different points. So if you have your Bible, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21 together. Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. We read this. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven said a blessing, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, over the course of our Matthew series, we have studied miracle after miracle, and we have seen Time after time, Jesus demonstrated his authority over biology, over salvation, over sin, over disease, over nature, 
Satan and sickness. And this morning we have read how Jesus demonstrated his authority by multiplying five barley loaves, as we will see, and two fish. Here's what I hope each of us see this morning. I hope we all walk away with this this morning. Our message point is nothing is impossible with God. Say that with me. Nothing is impossible with God. Three years ago, we went through a pretty difficult time as a faith family. If you were a part of our church at that time, you know that to be true. We were in desperate need of securing a loan in order to finance these buildings that we're in today. We prayed as a faith family. We fasted as a faith family, and we depended upon the Lord as a faith family. Before we secured financing, the Lord made it abundantly clear. We're walking through um, um, our, our Christmas um, sermon series, in fact, and making preparations for that. And I, I still remember to this day, very vividly, the Lord making it abundantly clear to me. He said, I am the God of the impossible. He said, nothing is impossible with me. And he told us that in the midst of us being told that we would never qualify for a loan because we were either too small, we didn't have enough giving units, or we didn't have a strong enough financial history to lean on. So bank after bank told us no. I will never forget getting a, a phone call for my friend Steve Musell over here. And, and he goes, Pastor, I think I found a, a bank that will lend us the money. And I, I was a little sheepish at, at that time because probably at that point, there was probably a dozen or more banks that had told us no. So when he called, I was both hopeful and skeptical. 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 Can't even say it. Skeptical. Let's, let's start over. Skeptical. Thank you. You know, I should not have been because God had already made it abundantly clear that he was the God of the impossible. And that's exactly who he proved to be when we got that financing that we need. David Platt wrote, referring to the incarnation of Christ, he said, as a son of man, fully human. As a son of God, fully God. You put this together and you realize indeed that the incarnation, the doctrine of Jesus, fully human and fully God. It is the most extraordinary miracle in all of the Bible. In all of the Bible. You think about it, if this is true, if Jesus is fully man and fully God, all of the other miracles in the Gospel of Matthew make total sense. I mean, really, is it that strange to believe? Is it that far-fetched to believe that he is walking on water when you realize that he created the water? Is it that strange to believe that he is able to feed over five thousand people with five loaves and two fish when you realize he created the stomachs of every single person that he is feeding? Is it really that outlandish to believe that he rose from the dead? He is God. What really is hard to believe is that he died in the first place. That is what is overwhelming. We serve a God who is the God of, he makes what is impossible possible, doesn't he? Notice our first point this morning. It's the fans of the king. 
the fans of the king. Last week, if you recall, we looked at the death of John the Baptist. Jesus said of John the Baptist that he is the greatest man ever born of a woman. And you think about that. That is a pretty impressive statement. When you think about all the great men of faith that we read about in the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ said that John the Baptist was greater than every single one of those. That is saying a lot. Following hearing of his death, Jesus and his disciples withdrew from the ground, and they went away seeking a place of rest and solitude. At least that's what they attempted to do. Luke tells us that they get into a boat and they head toward Bethsaida. Bethsaida was a small town on the banks of of, of the Sea of Galilee. Scripture tells us that when the crowd saw him set sail, they followed after him. In the book of Mark, we read that, that some people actually ran on foot ahead of them to get to the town. Here's what we know. Jesus did indeed have a following. Thousands upon thousands of people would greet Jesus whenever he and the disciples arrived in Bethsaida. Each of the gospel tell us that 5,000 men were present that day. That does not include the women and the children. So it's not too far-fetched to believe that there could have been some 15, 20, or 25,000 people that gathered that day to hear the Lord Jesus Christ teach. In that crowd, you had both followers of Jesus and you had fans of Jesus. Some were actually true worshipers of Jesus. To them, Jesus was indeed Lord. He was the long-awaited Messiah. They gathered that day to worship and sit at the feet of the king. So there were true followers in that crowd. I think some must have seen Jesus more as some sideshow act. I would imagine that first century Galilee was, a pretty, was pretty boring during those days. Kids, how many of you think that Collin County is a boring place to live? I don't know where my son is, but his hand needs to go up because he tells me that all the time. This may be a boring place to live, but I promise you first century Galilee was probably a little bit bore, bore, more boring. They did not have cell phones. They did not have television. You couldn't go down to the local theater to watch the latest Star Wars movie. Um, they did not have football or baseball to keep us entertained. There was no TV that was available for us to watch one of the 25 different versions of NCIS. Didn't have any of those things. So when Jesus showed up, being the greatest man that has ever walked the face of this earth, you can bet that there were some people that went to watch and hear and, and to check out Jesus just to see what his next miracle was going to be, to see if Jesus could one-up himself from the last miracle. So I really believe that there were some in that crowd that day that saw Jesus more of a side, as a sideshow act. Others, I believe, were true seekers. They truly were hoping that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited promised Messiah. They gathered like they had so many other times, seeking a sign that would lead them from being a fan of Jesus to being a true follower of Jesus. Some of you in this room this morning, you may be right there where you are, you are wrestling, am I a fan of Jesus or am I a true follower 
of Jesus. I pray that whenever we, this is all said and done this morning, that all of us will leave this place being followers of Jesus, not just fans of Jesus. What is keeping you this morning from becoming a follower of King Jesus? Notice our next point is this, the compassion of the King. The compassion of the King. We read in verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Several weeks ago, we looked at this word compassion and, and, and we looked at how this word comes from the Greek word splagnozomai, which comes from the word splachnos, meaning the inward parts, especially the heart, lungs, liver, and kidneys. These are known as the seat of affections. The kind of compassion that Jesus had for that crowd on this day was a deep hurt in the pit of his stomach. It would be like you and I, when we go through um, a time of uh, of tragedy in our life, our, our, our stomachs actually hurt. Have you ever been there where you just kind of double over because there's such pain that you are experiencing in the pit of your stomach? That is the kind of compassion that Jesus had for this crowd. In fact, we read in, in the book of Mark, Mark tells us that when Jesus saw the crowd, he, he, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They had no leader. And so that broke him. He had compassion for them. Here's what compassion does. Compassion moves a person to act. And that is exactly what we see with Jesus here. On this day, we know that Jesus wanted to be alone. But when Jesus looked out at the crowd, he had compassion for them. His compassion led him to heal those that had afflictions and to teach those that were in need of truth. That is what compassion should lead us to do as followers of Jesus Christ. Compassion should lead us to act. In the book of James, we read these words in verses 26 through 27. James wrote, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Here's what it says of religion. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from this world. Compassion to drive us to act and help those that are in great need. It should drive us to to even ask the question of those within this world that we do life with. It should drive us to ask the question, do they have hope? Do they know Jesus? Every single day, you and I run across people that come across our pathway. And probably many of them do not have a relationship with Jesus. Compassion should drive us to act and to reach them and to reach out to them. Jesus' compassion touched the entire person. The people that showed up that day had a broad range of human needs. The crowd consisted of sick people, of crippled people, of blind people, of mute people, the spiritually dead people, and hungry people. 
So what does our compassionate king do? He touches them at the point of their sincere need. From the beginning of time, that is what the Lord has been doing. God had a redemptive plan from the very beginning. In John three sixteen, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God had a redemptive plan. God had a specific plan as well. God's plan for redemption was and is specific. Jesus said in John 14, 6, what did Jesus say? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. And we looked at this last week. Jesus didn't say there's multiple ways to heaven. He said there is one way, and that way is through me. So Jesus had a specific plan. God had a specific plan. And also, God had a personal plan. That personal plan is to rescue people that were on a collision course with hell. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person that's ever walked the face of this earth has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, with the exception, obviously, of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. The consequences for your sin and my sin is eternal death. That verse goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Christ Jesus. When you and I place our faith in Jesus and repent of our sins, then we read that the gift for us is eternal life. Romans 10, 9 says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And in Romans 10, 13, it says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we know that God has a personal plan for every single person to lead them into a relationship with himself. And so as we go throughout this life seeking to be the hands and feet of Christ, we are to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice our final point this morning. It is this. Notice the work of the king. Notice the work of the king. Remember, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And as we walk through this last point, I want us to see that on this day when Jesus fed the 5,000 people, he met both a physical need and he met a spiritual need. Here's what I envision happened on this day. The day is winding down. And I, I think the disciples were, were experiencing some stomach pains of their own. I think their stomachs began to growl. So they get together and try to figure out amongst themselves, how can we get all of these people to leave so that we can go get us a bite to eat and get a good night's rest? So according to the Gospel of John, Philip approached Jesus with the people's need. Jesus knew what was in the disciples' heart, and he knew what was lacking in the people's stomach. So Philip approached Jesus, and Jesus asked Philip if there was any food available. And, and John tells us that Andrew, the brother of Peter, says, well, there is five loaves and two fish that this little boy has. And so Jesus instructs the men to go and, and, and get that 
food from that boy, which probably more than likely was probably that boy's lunch. And so these big burly men go over to this little boy and they take his five loaves and they take his two fish and they bring it to Jesus. You know, we don't know anything about this little boy. We don't know his name. We don't know his age. We don't know who his parents were or where his parents were at. We know absolutely nothing. There is no telling, though, how the events of this day impacted his life for all of eternity. Can you imagine what he must have thought when he saw his lunch feed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that day? Not only that, but when it was all said and done, there were leftovers as well. Jesus instructs the people to sit down. And he looks up toward heaven and he blesses the food. Notice what Jesus did not do. Jesus did not supernaturally satisfy the hungry of those people, did he? He didn't just, um, just in an instant, as he could have if he wanted, just made all of their hunger pains go away. Jesus also didn't just supernaturally um, uh, allow a plate of food just to show up in front of the people. He didn't do that. Notice what he did. He instructed his disciples to go out and distribute that food to all of those in attendance. We don't know anything about um, about how all of this transpired. We don't know um, whether or not, I mean, most likely the baskets weren't full um, to the point where they were too heavy for them to carry to distribute out the food. What I like to believe is that as the disciples went around with these baskets of food, as they put their hand in that basket and they passed out that bread and passed out that fish, that that basket was just constantly replenishing itself. Don't know if that's what happened. Because Scripture doesn't tell us. But that's kind of what I think um, probably happened. Because if it was automatically filled to the rim, they wouldn't be able to carry it to pass it out. Can you imagine how that cool that would have been for those disciples as they put their hand in there and just continuously gave out food after food after food? Let me ask you a question. This is really directed at the men in this room. Um, how many of your wives are like mine? You go to Chick-fil-A, and you ask your wife what she wants to eat. And she says that I would like an eight-count nugget with a drink. Well, would you like fries with that? No, I don't want any fries. And so you place your order. And for me, I would place a number one with fries with a large sweet tea. And so we get our order done. We go and we sit down. And all of a sudden, your wife has a fry craving. Has that ever happened to you? Where your wife has a fry craving, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, my wife has a, 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 a crispy waffle fry craving. You know, there's not a whole lot of fries that are put in those Chick-fil-A containers to begin with. But my wife goes and she shares with me is what we're doing. Okay? We're not sharing. She's stealing is what she's doing. If she wanted her fries, then she should have got her own fries, not take mine. So all of a sudden, at the end of um, the meal, I've had like one or two fries, and she's eaten all of them. But can you imagine what would happen if you went to Chick-fil-A and you got one fry box between the two of you, and that fry box never went empty into the point of satisfaction? You know, that's kind of what I think about whenever the disciples are going and they're passing out all of this food to all of the people. They pass it out, and that basket never 
goes empty. In fact, we read in, in, in verse 20, um, the scripture tells us that the people ate and they were satisfied. They ate and they were satisfied. In fact, even after they had finished eating, Scripture says that there are 12 baskets full of the broken pieces of leftover. God is truly the God of the impossible. What happened this day could not be duplicated by man. God is the only one that could do that, and his marvelous work was on full display before the thousands. Jesus met the physical needs of the people that day. They were hungry, and so he fed them. I want us to see this morning that this passage is so much more than Jesus just meeting a physical need that the people had. So much more. This miracle is all about Jesus being yours and my everything. Notice at the heart of this message, Jesus is meeting a spiritual need that the people had. I love what what one commentator states. He says, Jesus is not only the one who gives what satisfies, he is the one who satisfies. A few verses below the feeding of the 5,000 in the book of John, Jesus tells us in John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of of life. What did Jesus mean by that? Jesus meant that he is the source of all life. He is the giver of life. He is the author of life. He is the perfecter of life. He is also our satisfaction. In verse 35b, we read, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You and I do not need to turn to this world for satisfaction. Jesus is our satisfaction. He is our everything. He provides for us physically, but more importantly, he has provided for us spiritually. And he has given us everything we need. You know, and I've shared this many times, but one of my favorite stories in all the Bible is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember right before they were about to be thrown into that fiery furnace? You remember the encounter that they had with King Nebuchadnezzar? You remember what those men told that king? In Daniel three sixteen through 18, we read this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But notice verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will never serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that passage of scripture. Those men knew that God was the God of the impossible. They knew that God was able to deliver them from that fiery furnace. How did they know that? How did they know that? They knew it because the Lord was their everything. He was their source of satisfaction. Live or die. He was the source of their satisfaction. If they survived that fiery furnace, God got the glory. If they didn't survive that fiery furnace, they knew that God would still get the glory. In Psalm 34, 8, we read, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Lord must be our everything. He is able to satisfy us physically, and he is able to satisfy us spiritually. If you are here this morning, and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you have never made him the Lord and Savior of your life. If he is not your everything today, then let me encourage you this morning to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. Make Jesus your everything. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. This morning, are you a fan of the Lord Jesus Christ, or are you a true follower of Jesus Christ? If you're a fan, then I invite you this morning to make the greatest decision that you could ever make, and that is to, to repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and make him your Lord and your Savior. Make him your everything. And I promise you, if you do that, you will understand and realize that God indeed is the God of the impossible. You and I may not have all the answers, but we have the only answer that matters, and that is Jesus. Every day we see people in need, don't we? We see people with physical needs. We see people with emotional needs. We see people with psychological needs. We see people with spiritual needs. Let us be the hands and feet of Jesus and seek to reach those that do not have a relationship with him. Let us show compassion for those that are in great need of Jesus. And when we do that, we will see how God can and will do a supernatural act and allow us to participate in us. He truly is the God who makes the impossible possible. If you're here this morning, and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and experience for yourself that God is the God of the impossible. If you're here this morning you don't have a relationship, then in just a second we're going to sing a song of invitation, and I want to invite you to come this morning and surrender your life to Jesus. You may be here this morning, you've been visiting this church a while, and the Lord is leading you to become a part of Friendship Baptist Church, and we welcome you this morning. Let's stand together, and I'm gonna lead us in a time of prayer, and if there's a decision you need to make, you come, you come. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege of allowing us to come together to worship you. Father, we thank you for being a compassionate king. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for reaching down or leaving heaven and coming to this earth and providing a, a way that we can enter into an eternal relationship with God the Father. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for not remaining on that cross, not remaining in that grave. But, Lord, we thank you that three days after you were laid in that tomb, you burst forth in victory over death. And Lord, we shouldn't be surprised by the resurrection because you are indeed God. You are Lord of the resurrection. You are Lord of life. And so, Father, if there is someone here this morning that have never given their lives over to you, I pray this morning they'll make the greatest decision of their life. 
and that is to repent of their sins and to place their faith and trust in you. Father, there may be some here, Lord Jesus, that's been visiting this church for a while, Lord, and we invite them to come as well to make this their church home. Lord, just move now during our time of invitation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.